0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 9. There's a guy on the YouTube that I spent many hours. He's called Terry the Tabernacle Guy humorous name. He's from Jersey of all places. And uh, uh, he's a Messianic Jew and just goes through laborious times. And if you really wanted to study the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 26 through Exodus chapter 40, and understand on how the parallels of Christ is basically what Hebrews does. uh, That is, I would greatly recommend that. I would like us to read Hebrews chapter 9, please. And we're going to go through the first 15 verses. Jake, Jason and I had no idea exactly where to chop this in two, so <laughs> there was no easy place of chopping this in two because it's such a long chapter. Here we go. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstands, and the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, an ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, with the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations have thus been made. The priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. That word ritual duty is the same word as we found in verse 1, which is the word worship. Worship. It's used four times in this passage. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, Imposed until the time of reformation, or the time that it all straightens out. Verse 11. But when Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled pre- persons with the ashes of heifers sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our, this is the key word right there, consciousness, from dead works to serve or to worship the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant for those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Chapter 9 draws a comparison and a contrast between the Levitical rite ritual and the priesthood of Christ. The rituals of the old covenant were temporary. They were inadequate and they were ineffective. However... The work of Christ was permanent, thorough, and sufficient to remove sin permanently. Got to remember who is being these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. This is probably written about 50 or 55 AD. Some crazy guy named Nero is on the throne of Rome. And there was a lot of persecution for believers of Christ. Spiritually, the author is telling his readers... Don't go back under Judaism because Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Religiously, he says, don't go back to Judaism because Jesus will enable you to withstand the persecution from family, friends, and the Romans. And then finally, politically, which we know they did not know. But what happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed? Two plus million Jews were killed by the Romans, and the temple was destroyed. Don't go back. Don't go back. The author author proves in chapter 1 that Christ is superior to the prophets. In chapter 1 through 5 through chapter 2, Christ is superior to the angels. Chapter 3 through chapter 4, Christ is superior to Moses. Chapter 5 through chapter 7, Christ is the superior priesthood. Last week we looked at Christ is superior to the covenant. And now we're going to see from this point on through chapter 10, verse 18, where Christ is the superior sacrifice. If you lived 2,000 years ago and you were in Jerusalem... The center of all the world was the temple. Everything was the temple. Just like when you go to London, England, as a tourist, you say, where's the Buck House? Well, that's Buckingham Palace. Everybody knows where the Buck House is. You just know that if you're from there. In Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we have this reality. But at the same time, he's also encouraging his readers to, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, don't drift away from Jesus. The second danger that they were, don't doubt Jesus. Chapter 5, don't be dull of hearing from Jesus. Chapter 6, don't depart from Jesus. What we're going to see in a couple of weeks is chapter 10 through 26. The fifth danger is don't despise Jesus. And then his last warning passage is in chapter 12, the peril of denying Jesus. All these things, he is begging them, don't go back. It might be hard if you were born and raised in this state and if you were born and raised a Baptist To understand what he's talking about, about not going back. But for some of us who were not raised Baptists, and when we were called by God and we committed everything to God, many people. And I clearly remember, and Joanna, will tell you, that my father told us that we were the sons of Satan because we wanted to follow Jesus. He told us. That. I clearly remember that moment in my life as never before. And I said, whoa. Now, I, didn't, I came out of a mainline denomination. That wasn't Baptist. So that was strike one right there. But also had students in Cameroon. When I taught in a seminary there, who left Islam, and their father, the guy's name was Noah, and he left Islam, and his father had a public funeral service for Noah, and in the father's eyes, Noah was dead, and he followed Christ. For those of you who are older and if you like to watch old movies, I love to watch Fiddler on the Roof. I watch that at least every once or two or three times, four times, five times every decade or so. But in one of those episodes or one of those places where one of the daughters married a non-Jewish person. And she left it all behind. The author is telling these people, in spite of the persecution by family and despite the persecution by the Romans, don't go back because there's nothing to go back to. What we might also learn before we hit verse 1 is that we've been taught that many Christians were executed by Nero because they were Christians. Well, that's true to a sense. But see, a good Roman 2,000 years ago, a good Roman, they had to go to their, what we would call a county seat, and they would have to throw a pinch of incense upon their county seats, altar, and say Caesar was curious. Caesar was Lord. Well, if you're a believer, are you going to do that? No. So many, many people were executed by Nero. Many people were fed to the lions. Many people were in the Colosseums because they refused To say Caesar was curious. The author is saying, do not go back. Do not go back. Now let's look. First of all, we have two points. This is easy two points. We worship Jesus because he's the superior sanctuary. The temple was the sanctuary, verses 1 to 10. He's the superior sanctuary. Verses 11 through 15, he's the superior sacrifice. And every temple had to have a sacrifice. And this man is arguing that Christ is the superior sacrifice. He is the superior sanctuary. And everybody who came to Jerusalem, they saw the temple... They saw the sanctuary and those Jews 2,000 years ago knew all about it, especially if their families were part of the priesthood. Let's look at verse 1, please. We worship Jesus because he's a superior sanctuary because the present is worldly. Look at what it says, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and this earthly place of holiness. It was a place that was holy. The high priest only went in there once a year for himself. It was a place that was worldly. The tabernacle, the temple, 2,000 years ago was a temple, temporary place. Verses 2 to 5, it was a shadow of the heavenly. When God gave this to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai, it was a shadow of the heavenly. The whole point is that the tabernacle was to be a picture of what was in heaven. The shadow. I have a shadow right here. That's not the real thing. The tabernacle is a shadow of the heavenly. Look at what it says, verses 2 to 5. For a tent, you will see the phrase tent and tabernacle interchanged here. Because in Moses' day, it was a tent. For a tent was prepared the first section, which is where the lampstand was. I just had to bring this. This is called a menorah. In our Bibles, when we see the word lampstand, it's the Hebrew word menorah. That's what it is. It's a seven armed candlestick, one main, and you had the oil, and it was always olive oil. And what I just learned that I did not know that the wicks that they used. Were from the worn-out garments of the priest, and they would sl- and they would cut them up, roll them up, put them in there, put the oil in there, and that was the that was the wicks for the candlestick. So whenever you see the word lampstand in all the Bible, it's actually the Hebrew word menorah, which means candlestick. What else was there in the first section? And the table. And the loaves of 12, loaves of bread for each, for the presence of the nation of Israel for the 12 tribes. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. We're going to show you a slide of this in just a few moments. Having the golden altar of incense, which are prayers in the Ark of the Covenant, covering on all sides with gold in which is were a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, or what we would call the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Why? Because Exodus chapter 26 through chapter 40 tells the whole thing. So he's giving them a summation here. So first of all, It was worldly. The tabernacle which those Jews saw 2,000 years ago was and it was just a shadow of what was in glory. Verse 6 to 7, it was limited in what it could do. It was limited. Verse 6, these preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. You see that word duties? It's the same word as worship. One of the three times, one of the four times that it's used in this passage. It's that which we do unto the honor of God. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking of blood, which he offers for himself, And for the unintentional sins of the people. It was limited. It was limited. And boy, this is hard for us to grasp. Verse 8, it was temporary. Now temporary for them was 1,300 years, but it was still temporary. Look at verse 8, it says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Because remember, when this is written, the, the tabernacle, the temple was still in active reality. It wasn't until 70 AD when the Romans came in under a guy named Titus that decimated and Plus, two million people were butchered by the Romans. And if you ever watch the movie or the The DVD, what used to be a DVD, I imagine it's on Netflix now. Masada, the last great bastion of Jewish holdouts. Two million people were murdered. It was temporary. It was limited. It was a shadow of the earthly thing. And it was worldly. What they saw was worldly. And the author is illustrating that, that Christ... It's a superior sanctuary because this is not. Verse 9, it was ineffective, and here's the key. It was all outward. None of it dealt with the inward reality of our sinful hearts. That's what he's arguing. That's what he will argue. It was all outward and nothing inward. Look at what it says. It was ineffective, which is symbolic. You see that word symbol? You could translate that as a parable. Remember Jesus taught many parables. That's what the Greek word is, parables. For the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect what? The consciousness. All this was just, when the high priest went in there, he still felt like a wretched sinner when he left. He laughed. Because nothing was changed on the inside. And that's what the author is arguing. That Christ changes it all because he's a superior sanctuary. Because of the superior sacrifice. Because he deals with the heart. That's what he's arguing. Notice what it says, continuing on. But deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The word reformation is to mean make straight. It has nothing to do with John Calvin. This is not John Calvin here, guys. This means to make it straight, to straighten it out. So we worship because Jesus is the superior sanctuary. And I would imagine for the Jews 2,000 years ago, when somebody would say, well, where's your, where's your sanctuary? Well, our sanctuary is in heaven, but a Jew 2,000 years ago would say, but the temple is my sanctuary. And they struggled with that. Look what it says, verses 11 and following, please. We worship because Jesus is the superior sacrifice. Because if you have a sanctuary, you got to have a Sacrifice. And if you got a sacrifice, you got to have a sanctuary. His arrival, verse 11. But when Christ appeared on the scene as a high priest, he appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come. The author is saying he came. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is now this thing. He came, and his name is Yeshua. The Jews would have called him Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He came. And what was the resolve? Look what it says, his blood, verse 12. He entered once for all into what? The holy place. Remember, in verses five to six there, Those high priests went in there year after year after year after year after year after year after year year with the blood of bulls and goats. But Christ went in there once by the means of his own blood into the holy place. Securing an eternal, what's the next word? Redemption. Redemption. There's about five words in the Old Testament that are basically translated redeem or redemption. This is one of those words that it means that a ransom was paid. Christ paid a ransom for our salvation. And what was it? It was his blood. That was the price that he paid for my redemption and for your redemption. He paid that. Oh, but now verse 13 and 14. This is the culmination basically of chapter 9. For if the blood of goats, blood of goats was always for the people, and the blood of priests was, or the blood of bulls was always for the priests, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers, that goes back to the book of Numbers, sanctified for the purification of flesh. It did the flesh, it purified them for a little bit. You got to remember that the word atonement in the Old Testament was a covering. What did John the Baptist say in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was just not atoned for. It was removed. He took it away. Look at what else he says. Verse 14. How much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying, what's the next word? Our consciousness. See, when those priests went in there year after year after year, nothing was done internally. It was all externally. And Christ came As a superior sacrifice because of a superior sanctuary to deal with our consciousness, to deal with our heart. And that's basically what we learned last week about the new covenant. He dealt with the heart. Purifying our heart, which is the inner man from dead works, to serve the living God. We can now serve him. You see that word serve? That also means worship. Same word, that word is used four times in this passage. Whenever you see the word serve or ritual duties, it means to worship. Those men went in there to worship their service. Now look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator. When you go to court... If you're smart, who do you take with you? An attorney, right? He's the mediator for you. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, which we learned last week in chapter 8. So that those who are called may receive the eternal promise, the promise eternal inheritance. This is eternal. Since a death has occurred that redeems See that word redeems? I wish 40 years ago I was smarter than what I was then. That word redeemed is a magnificent word. And it comes from the Roman world where a man would, a man of means, whether he was a Caesar household or whether he was a Centurion or whether he was a senator, and he would go to the slave market and he'd buy some slaves and he'd pay a price. Then he would undo the ropes or the handcuffs or whatever they had back then and he would let them free. But he paid the price. That's what this word "redeem" means. Christ redeemed us. And what was the payment was his blood. And he makes us free because our consciousness now, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore we have peace with God. It's so important. The old priesthood, The old covenant, the old sanctuary cannot and did not cleanse one's sinful heart or consciousness. Couldn't do it. Did you realize that out of the 613 laws that God gave the nation of Israel, 365 of them were don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. 248 of them were do's. God gave the nation of Israel those laws to show that they needed a Savior. And Paul says in Galatians that they were a what? A schoolmaster was what Paul says in the book of Galatians. See, See, the Ten Commandments was never designed by God to get us saved. They were to show us that we needed a Savior. But the New Covenant... The new priesthood and the perfect sacrifice can and does cleanse one's heart, sinful heart and consciousness. His sacrifice was perfect, and his sacrifice was love. He voluntarily did it. His sacrifice was rational and motivated by love. His sacrifice was a desire for us to worship him. So now how do we wrap this all up? How do, we, how do we make sense out of this in 2013? Let's show that slide. Please, sir. Ah. Oh, is that nice. This is the temple, or this is the tabernacle. I didn't want to give you a handout. i got to be nice. This is how they would have sought. And what Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 to 10 basically tells us what this is. And this is what God gave Moses in Exodus 26 through 40. And this was God's present with the nation of Israel. You had three tribes on the east side, three tribes on the west side, three tribes on the south side, three tribes on the north side. Surrounding this, and notice, child of God, there's only one door. What did Jesus say? I am the door. No man comes to the Father except for through me there's only one way in why because and that's in the in the world there's condemnation in the world the eastern gate is God's only way I'm the way the truth and the life John chapter 14 verse 6 says then notice what he has you come in as soon as you walk in there there's called a brazen altar that's where they would sacrifice the bulls and the goats And these gentlemen, these priests, they did this every single day, day in and day out for a thousand plus years. This is basically, the entire section is about 75 feet, 75 feet long, or rather 150 feet long, about 75 feet wide. The door or the gate, by the way, the word door and gate are basically the same word. And there was only one way in, and you had to take care of that. Then you had the laver. This is the place of cleansing. You cleanse, your sin was cleansed by the brazen altar of the burnt offering. Then you went to the laver, and that's where you were purified with the water. Remember Jesus told Peter, you were clean. Remember when he was washing their feet? That is where this comes from. So in the world, there's condemnation. In the court, this is called the court, where the labor is and where the brazen altar, that was the court. And the priests were in there daily. Every single day they were doing this. So there was cleansing there because of the blood and because of the water. Then you go into the holy place, the first section. And what is in there? Three things are in there. This is the place of worship. This is the place of worship. We had the manure, the lampstand. This was all covered. There was only one light there. And the Hebrew or the priest would make sure that every single day in the morning and in the evening, that there was plenty of olive oil and plenty of wicks. Then on the other side, you would have the show bread for the nation of Israel, the 12 loaves of bread. And then it says this, and I didn't realize this. One of my mentors is a guy named Jay Vernon McGee. Now, for for some of you old guys, you remember who Jay Vernon McGee is. And I just realized this, because this author says, this author says that... The altar of incense, right there, is in the most holy place. Well, in this slide, until Jesus, it was in the holy place. Why does he say it's in the most holy place? Now, what took place when Jesus died? The veil of the temple was what? Torn from top to bottom. Now we can automatically go in. That was the place of purification and prayer. So we see the sustenance, we see the food, we see the light. Then the most holy place. Mark chapter 15, 38 talks about the veil of the temple being rent into. Then it separates us. And then we had the mercy seat. This is where the priest would go one time a year, and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat seven times for himself and then seven times for the nation of Israel. And the sins were covered. They were not yet removed. Now let's wrap this up. I thought this was so fascinating. So, so, so fascinating. The Hebrew author tells us that there's three things in the ark of the covenant. Three things that are so significant to the nation of Israel and to us today in 2023. His commandments, what we'd call the 10 commandments, which means that it is his judication. But what do we do? We break the law. We break the law. As I tell my children all the time, as I tell my sons, how many times should you have been pulled over for speeding? (laughs) Right? How many times should we have been pulled over for speeding? See, the Ten Commandments were designed by God to show us that we needed a Savior. That was the first thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant. The second thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant... Was manna his profession? Do you realize for the 40 years that the nation of Israel followed the cloud in the day and the pillar of fire by night that Christ fed them for 40 years in by manna? I can imagine having the textbooks or rather the cookbooks, a thousand and one ways of making manna taste better. I don't know. But you get the point. So you got the commandments. And what do we do with the commandments? We break them. But number two, the manner, His provision. And what is J. Vernon McGee says that God's, bake, God's bakery is his Bible. That's great. God's bakery is his Bible. Feed upon the word of God. Feed upon it. Enjoy it. I've been listening through God's Word, I don't know, more than 10 years now, on my way from here to the Jimmy Hill Mission, back and forth every single day. And guess what? I'm beginning to learn it. I'm feeding upon the Word. And that's where I learned that Ezekiel and Jeremiah was the one when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Who came up with that? Ezekiel and Jeremiah said it first. So feed upon the word of God. But the last one, the reason I had Jacob have Numbers chapter 17. This is so magnificent. The nation of Israel had balked and balked and balked at Moses' authority. In fact, by the time you get to Numbers chapter 17, it's their 12th time of challenging Moses as authority. Twelve times. That's a lot of times. And so what did Moses say? Every man take a staff. Put your name on the staff. And give it to me and we'll take it into, we'll take it into the holy place. We'll take it into the holy, holy place. Put your name on it. And we'll come back in 24 hours and see what God does. Now, what is a staff, guys? It's a piece of wood. But is that piece of wood at that moment alive or dead? It's dead. (laughs) It's dead, dead. There's no life to it at all. There's a rod, his staff. You do remember that that David said, his rod and the staff, they comfort me? One has a crook and one has does not have a crook. So what happens? They come back 24 hours later, and it says that Aaron's rod budded, had blossoms, and had almonds. What did Jesus die upon? The eights, a dead piece of wood. We call it the cross. And Moses is saying the reason that this is in there, this is in there, is that don't balk at the rebellion of God's leadership. And that's what the nation of Israel had done. They had disobeyed the commandments. They had denied the authority. By the way, the whole issue about the budding rod is a picture of the resurrection. Genesis, or rather Numbers 17, is all about the resurrection of Christ. And then lastly, the manna. The manna is, Lord, help us not to be so ungrateful. Help us not to be so ungrateful. I don't know about you, but I can be very ungrateful. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we can be so ungrateful. We can be so we can be so disobedient and we can be so rebellious. Christ is a superior sanctuary. And he gave them a superior sacrifice. And what is he telling the guys? What is he telling these people? Don't go back under the law. Don't go back. For some of us, for some of us we've done that. For some of us, some of us we've left our families. I know one particular lady in Clanton. She was raised in what I would just call a cult. I'm not going to name the cult, but a cult. And she's the only person that is a believer in her family. One of the books that I've given to Jason for, to uh, help him study for the book of Hebrews is a guy named Arnold Fritschenbaum. good German Jewish name. He comes from Russia in 1949, 50, 51. Comes to New York City. Gets marvelously born again. Raised an Orthodox Jew. And he's the only member of his family who knows Christ as his society. His, Christ as his Savior. And the rest of his family has rejected him because of Christ. So what's the author saying? Man, don't go back. Because there's nothing to go back to. Why? Because Christ is the superior sanctuary. Because he is ultimately the superior sacrifice. Father, we thank you for your word. God, all I can do is say, wow. Just phenomenal for what you have taught us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for what you have taught us today. And Lord, help us not to be so rebellious. Help us not to be so ungrateful. Help us not to be so disobedient. As we look at your word and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit christcentralchurch.net.